Take your copy of God's Word, open if you would to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we begin in verse 1. I want to, the Lord willing, over the next few weeks, begin a series in 1 Thessalonians. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote about half of the New Testament, writes this book with a very specific purpose in mind, and I want you to see to get an idea of his missionary journeys. He took four missionary journeys all over the known world at that time. I've got a graphic that takes the Mediterranean Sea and shows you what that would look like. You'll see that on the screen behind you in just a moment. It is as if the Mediterranean Sea were taken into the United States. That's how big it is. If the Mediterranean Sea were in the USA right now, and of course they've got the different outlines. You see the booth, it's Italy. You see the uh, the coast of, of Greece and Achaia at that time. But if you can imagine all the outer rim of that sea, that is where the Apostle Paul traveled in the ancient world, thousands upon thousands of miles. At some points, he would stay as long as three years. In Thessalonica, he only stayed three weeks. And there were 100,000 people in Thessalonica at the time. It was the capital city of Macedonia, prominent city on the coast. And Paul writes them, because he wasn't able to stay there very long, he sends Timothy and says, Timothy, go and give me a report. Timothy gives a well, relatively good report, but he says, Paul, they want to see your face. They're concerned about some things. And they really needed reassurance about those who had died, those who had gone before them. I don't know about you, but the older that I get, the more it hits me when people die and when they pass. Even over this past year, as we've dealt with, with bouts of sickness from people dying of, of COVID and other things, I think of Charlie Edwards. He was a member who joined just a couple of weeks after I came to Hallsville Baptist Church, lived in Indiana, drove across the river, was a war veteran. 91 years old, every Sunday after church, he wouldn't tell me, thank you for that sermon. He would say, thank God for that sermon. I remember thinking he was right. He's a wonderful man to be around. He died this past month. I think of Harold Wayne Newton. He was county attorney in Hancock County. He was a good friend of mine. had been in his home. Passed away in the hospital just a couple of weeks ago after overcoming COVID, but then passing of pneumonia. The only person to date that I have ever had writing a letter after I preached one of my sermons in disagreement of the letter of the sermon and he had a really good response we had dialogue back and forth I was honored that he wrote that letter to me he was a great man gave generously I think of Alicia Wedding who was in her 40s when she joined our campus in Tell City Indiana two teenage boys good health died just a couple of months ago in the hospital leaving her sons behind I think of Connie Gardner at Mount Tabor in Buffalo, Kentucky. I was there the day Connie's first grandson was born. I remember it well because we had had an older member pass away just a few minutes before in the same hospital. So I went, I went from the death ward to the maternity ward in just a matter of two or three minutes. And I remember holding her grandson for the first time. And she looked at me, and with dead seriousness in her eyes, she said, don't you drop him. And I don't know that I've ever been more scared in my life. I didn't drop that boy. She's got two of them. Just passed away after dealing with COVID. Three months. Age 62. I think if someone out of our church, our own, one of our swordsmen, called out with her husband, Russ, Karen Livers. Karen had the joy of the Lord in her struggled, 
and went to be into the presence of the Lord just a few months ago, leaving a husband and two kids behind. They needed reassurance. Do you need reassurance when loved ones, people you've known, have gone before? When people that you thought would be there weren't there? When the world that you thought you understood and you knew changed on you overnight to the point at which the country that you see you don't even recognize anymore? And Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica for this reason. They want to see him again in person, but he says, even though you can't see me in person, I may be absent in body, but I'm not absent in heart. And he begins to write them and encourage them in the Lord. Look at this passage with me together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and beginning with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction but with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The apostle says, we can give thanks to God for you all, and we constantly mention you in our prayers, and there's a reason for it, because we remember before God and Father your work of faith. What is that work of faith? Simply saying that everything that we do ought to be done in faith. If it's not done in faith, it's not worth doing. If it's not done in faith, it doesn't rely on the Lord because we don't depend on our own strength and on our own power, but on God's. Our ultimate source of strength, thankful for buildings, thankful for facilities, but our ultimate source of strength isn't brick or mortar, but it's faith. You think about faith. Faith is foresight it's seeing ahead but it's also hindsight it's looking behind it's it's foresight it says this is where I will be once I get where I'm going and I claim the promises of God for that but it's also hindsight which says I wouldn't be where I am had I not gone through what I did and that's often the way the will of God works in our lives. You can't see at any given time exactly what God is doing often until you get to the other side and you say, thank God that I went through it and God has brought me to it and I wouldn't be here otherwise. He talks about the work of faith, but then he also mentions the labor of love. What is this labor of love? It is that everything we do must be done in love. The apostle will echo much the same thing elsewhere, that if you don't do it in love, it won't last. You can have faith that will move mountains. You can bestow all your goods. You can give your body to be burned in sacrifice, but if you don't do it in love, it's not worth much. We've got a lot of people who are speaking truth, but they're not speaking it in love. 
and therefore it's not heard. Love for God, ultimately, love for one another. The great commandment and the great commission. Are you doing what you're doing just to do it, or do you do it with the spirit of love? Because it's the only thing that will last. He talks about this work of faith. He talks about this labor of love. And then he says, it is a steadfastness or a patience of hope. The scripture will say elsewhere. What is this steadfastness? What is this patience of hope? It's that we offer the hope of Christ with endurance because we live in a world that is often without hope, in a world that is filled with anxiety. We've got social anxiety. We've got medical anxiety. We've got economic anxiety. We've got political anxiety. My goodness, do we have spiritual anxiety? It is all around us. And the scripture reminds us not to be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request to God be made known. In a world that is filled with anxiety, the apostle will write, don't live as those who have no hope. Sorrow, but don't sorrow as those who have no hope, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we also believe that those who sleep in Jesus will God one day bring with him. And so he gives us this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. He says, in the middle of impossible circumstances, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Sometimes people say, I'm so glad I found Jesus. And you can search for him if you want to. But the truth is, you didn't find Jesus nearly as much as he found you. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he says, for those of us who are in Christ, we have been chosen even from the foundation of the world that God in his perfect plan of salvation has made a way for those who would believe. And he says, our gospel came to you not just in word, not just in format, but also in power and in the spirit and with full conviction of the Lord. Erwin Lutzer, who's the retired pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, hosts a well-known radio broadcast for decades, was also a teacher, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, a seminary in the suburbs of Chicago. And as part of his class, he would take them to a cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois. Just take everybody out there. And he would have them gather around a certain gravesite. He'd point at the grave, and he'd tell one of the students... Preach the gospel to Mr. Smith right here. Well, they look at him like he's nuts, just as you would. And so he said, I would preach to Mr. Smith with enthusiasm. Sir, Jesus died for your sins, and you must put your faith in him. The students all look at him like crazy. And he looks at them and he says, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people because the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and you can preach your heart out, but nothing happens unless God does a miracle to give them the gift of life to listen. Jonathan Edwards knew much the same thing when he preached his most well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He originally had it preached before people who were given the death sentence. And so right before they died, this was a common thing. That sermon would be preached. You're getting ready to meet your maker. Make sure everything's right. And he decided to do something different. He preached it not only there, but also to his listeners at Enfield. 
They were so moved, as he described, being under the wrath of God, as if they were under a spider's web, holding them over eternity, that some people were screaming in their seats, and some people were weeping with rejoicing because God was saving them. And it sparked a great awakening in our country. Did you know that just a few weeks beforehand, he preached that exact same sermon with just a couple of adjustments to his own church at Northampton? And there wasn't any kind of great effect. In fact, most of the people walked out, said, nice sermon, pastor, thank you, and went on their way to lunch. And Edwards later records this in his journal. He says this is his own analysis of the revival. Here's what he says, the great awakening in American history. He says, the word is the occasion for awakening and a necessary one, but the spirit of God does the work and he blows where he wills. He says his passing could be seen in lasting changes. People made humble, faithful, prayerful, holy. Churches made earnest in worship and hungry for the word. He says, I don't even look for it in screams or in feignings or in any other spectacular phenomena. They don't demonstrate the spirit's presence. Neither do they preclude it either. He says, ultimately, it has to be a work of God. Now, here's what changes the spiritual realm from the business realm or the political realm or any other realm of life. In the spiritual realm, you can gather the wood and you can make the camp, but only God can light the fire. That's just the way it works. And so we can have our own plans and our own proposals, but God himself has to do the work. And unless we cry out to him, the apostle is reminding them that this gospel isn't just in our words. It's accompanied with spirit. It's accompanied with power. It's accompanied with authority from the Lord himself. And he reminds us that it is not by might. It is not by power. It is by the spirit of God, says the Lord of hosts. And because of that spirit, because of that gospel that came to you, you became imitators of Paul. He says imitation and discipleship as the sincerest form of flattery. Don Shula said it this way, I don't know any other way to lead but by example. And this is what happens when you become a follower of Christ, you become an imitator because you receive that word. He says in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, can you have joy in your suffering? That is a mark of the believer. Anybody can serve God when things are good, but can you serve him when times are bad? Because you received that word in affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, you became imitators and you became an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so when we talk about the process of raising up or of building, we're talking about discipleship. And it's really a threefold process that Paul lays it out here himself. He says, first of all, you received the word. That's how it happens. Second, you became imitators. You followed somebody who knew of Christ. Third, you became examples to others. That's how it works. You hear the word for yourself, you follow someone who follows Christ, and then you become an example to other people. He's not talking about Christian living here, brothers and sisters. He's talking about life in Christ. Christian living is boring. That can go in a magazine. But life in Christ is everything. It is the very breath of which I breathe. It is the very life of which I live. When I live life in Christ, there is power that does not come from anywhere else on this earth. 
but in Jesus. You receive the word. You become imitators. You become examples. And really, he's given us a pattern of what exactly happens with Paul and Barnabas and Timothy. Someone said this is really the pattern that we should seek to build out in our lives, to have three individuals in our lives. If you're a guy, three ladies in our lives if we're, if we're a lady. And he says, Paul here, have a Paul, have a Barnabas, and have a Timothy. He says, a Paul is someone who's an older man who's willing to mentor you, to build into your life. Not necessarily somebody who's smarter than you or more gifted than you, but somebody who's been down the road, somebody willing to share their strengths and weaknesses, somebody whose faith you'll want to imitate. That's a Paul in your life. A Barnabas is the second person you need to have in your life. That's a brother. That's a sister. Somebody who loves you but isn't impressed by you. Somebody to whom you can be accountable. Somebody who's willing to keep you honest with yourself. So you need a Paul, you need a Barnabas, and then you need a Timothy. A Timothy is a younger man or younger woman into whose life you are building. You can see what Paul does in First and Second Timothy. Here he is building into the life of his protege, affirming, encouraging, teaching, correcting, directing, praying. Do you have those people in your life? Someone you're looking to, someone who keeps you accountable, and someone you're pouring into. That's discipleship. First you heard the word. Then you became an imitator. Then you set an example. And I want you to see that it is a fulfillment of the Macedonian call. You remember that vision that Paul received in the middle of the night. Come over to Macedonia and help us. All those years ago in the book of Acts, here he is in the capital city, there itself, proclaiming the gospel to those who would hear it. God's word always becomes fulfilled. And he says, here's what you did. Here's how it made a difference in your life. You turned to God from idols. That's how it happens. I heard one man describe this kind of experiment. They said 100 decoys were placed on the Izu Islands of Japan. 100 decoys to attract endangered albatrosses and encourage them to breed. So they were trying to get them there in order to get them to breed, in order to be able to monitor them. They said for more than two years, a five-year-old albatross tried to woo a wooden decoy by building fancy nests around it and fighting off all the rival suities, all the rival suitors. He spent his days standing faithfully by her side. And one researcher talking about this albatross's infatuation with a wooden decoy said, he seems to have no desire to date real birds. And so it is with people who put their affections upon the gods of this world instead upon the word of the Lord. You're not going after the real thing. You're dating a false idol. And they're all around us. Either we date that which isn't real or we marry ourselves to Christ the bridegroom. He says, this is what you're doing. You're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You think about it, in a world that is filled with optics, in a world where it is all about show, Jesus is the light of the world. And he doesn't need all of that. He simply needs people willing to follow him, whatever the cost. And I like the way Charles Spurgeon puts this. Concerning this passage, he says, The best morality springs out of gratitude for pardon and grace and lively hope received as the gifts of heaven. If you serve Jesus because you think that gets you into heaven, that's not going to last. 
You're going to serve in a risk-reward relationship, and you're not going to be able to hold up your end of the bargain because that bargain doesn't exist because it's impossible. But if you serve Jesus based on what he's done for you, and you say, thank you, God, for saving me in the depths of my sin and redeeming me from that wrath to come. Thank you for giving me that peace of God, that joy in affliction. Thank you for giving me imitators so I can now be an example. Thank you for the work of faith. Thank you for the labor of love. Thank you for the patience of hope. You will serve God in the best way possible, which is saying, thank you, Jesus, with my life for what you've given to me. Missionaries are required to go to language school in our denomination as well as others. It takes a while to learn a language. And one of the teachers decided on the very first day of the class, she was reminding them of how long it would take them to learn the language. She said, I want you to pay very close attention to me. She put on some perfume. I found some 10-year-old cologne the other day that I didn't wear. You're welcome. I threw it away. But she found some perfume, put it on, and began to walk around that classroom without saying a word. She said, what did you notice about what I was doing? And all the people said, well, you didn't say anything, but we could smell that perfume on you. And she said, it may be years before you learn the language of these people that you're going to witness to, but they will always be able to smell the aroma of Christ on your life. And that's what Jesus says we are to be, a sweet fragrance, an offering unto the Lord so that people will see and hear who Jesus is. And so he says to the church at Thessalonica, he says to the church at Glendale, be encouraged by what God is doing. Stay the course, remain faithful, because he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ until he calls us home or until he comes. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift.